Shall we give the Lord a clap offering, church? Hallelujah. It is always a joy and a privilege to bring God's word into your homes. Again, this morning, we're going to be studying uh, a specific topic. Today, it's not an expository sermon, but rather a topical sermon, which I usually preach to the leaders in churches. And I want this to be a training for anyone who is in Christian ministry. Not only that, it is also a training for every Christian. Now, this is what I'm titling this, Seven Traits of Highly Effective Disciple Makers. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. I pray that the Holy Spirit be our teacher. Give us listening ears and a heart that is willing to obey mighty God. Lord, we know that we are on a journey, that we are continually being transformed into the likeness of Christ. And even today, I pray that the Holy Spirit will remind us of what it is that he is transforming towards. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name and people of God said, Amen and amen. As a church consultant, whenever I sit down with a leadership team of a church, I help them to understand what are some of the key things to look for in the life of the church. One of the most important things is you can either structure a church for growth or you can structure the church for health. See, what it means is many times people are focused on growing, growing in numbers growing the leaders, growing. It's always about growth-oriented, uh, performance-oriented mindset. But on the other hand, what you need to do is to be able to think about how can I grow the leadership of the church into health? How can I get the core of the church, the people in the church to be healthy, healthy individuals who are following the Lord, healthy families that are serving together, healthy leadership teams? Now, why I emphasize this is because healthy things grow. You don't have to go after growth. If you remain healthy, anything that is healthy will continue to grow. Growth is a byproduct. So that's why focus should be on the health of the church. For this, sometimes I've helped leadership to understand there are seven stages of church life. I want you to capture this this morning. I know this may be very technical for some of you who may not be in leadership, but I want you to understand when you look at a church, if it's a new startup, it's like a church planting. It's something that is a new work that is being established. It's the first stage called launch. But at some point, there is a divine momentum that comes in. It, it may take a year, it may take a month, it may take a week, but there is an unction, there is a divine flow that takes place. And in that momentum, you need to, it, it, it helps the church to grow. Now, in that season of momentum, the leaders need to look at very critically in terms of what is it that causes us to grow. Now listen carefully, 20% of things you do causes 80% of the growth. And 20% of what you focus on will cost 80% of the health. Not all that you do actually contributes to the growth. So when you become strategic in your thinking and put those strategic things in place, you enter into a strategic moment, mo momentum. And in that strategic momentum, if it continues and you can sustain it and you keep, re you keep adjusting the lenses through which you evaluate ministries, you keep refining what you do, you get into a sustained momentum. Now, there are churches that have gone through phases like this, and then suddenly they lose track of where they are. They lose sight of what is the mission. They become uh, conflict-ridden. They become very divisive and fragmented. As a result, what happens? They go into a maintenance mode. 
And once the church settles into a maintenance mode long enough, it enters into a preservation mode. In other words, it's all about position. It's all about people preserving what they can hold on to. And it becomes, ends up in conflict. Finally, it dies a slow death of life support. Now, I don't want you to just look at this as a way to gauge the church that you're in, but I want you to think about this because if you're a leader, if you're a pastor, God-given responsibility for us is to develop the right lens through which we need to see. You need to evaluate where is the church currently in this season of our church life. The reason I'm saying this is because when I speak to the leaders, I help them to understand that there are strategic inflection points in each ministry. In other words, it's almost like a J curve, right? the bell curve. The bell curve is there's a thing that is rising up. But at some point, it will start to flatten the curve. And at some point, it will start to decline if things just are left as it is. And in those strategic moments where the bell curve is about to change, in geometry, in calculus, it's called inflection points. But in business and in leadership, it is called it's, it's the strategic moments where you have to make certain adjustments. You've got to revisit the vision, revisit the culture, revisit your team, and to help position yourself to be able to move to the next level that God has for us. So these are things that you and I, we need to recognize. Albert Einstein said it this way. It's the definition of insanity. Doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results, isn't it? You can't keep doing the same thing year after year and expect that somehow this year things will be different. Now, look at another person, Henry Ford. What did he say? If you always do what you've always done, you will always get what you've always got. That's quite a mouthful. But think about this. There's wisdom in this. That in other words, you and I, we need to take, pay attention to not just keep repeating the same thing over and over again. Because in the church world, faithfulness is seen as doing the same thing over and over again. But it's not like that. You and I, we need to take stock of what is the Holy Spirit saying in this season? What is the season in which the church is going? As a leader, we need to recognize the season as well as discern the voice of God, the sound of what God is speaking, and then give leadership to that. Now, this is important. So when, whenever um, we are walking with leaders, the, one of the core things we focus on is the heart of the leader. See, whenever, whether you're a parent working with your children or whether you're a businessman working with your team, it, we always address the behavior. We always focus on the external behavior, the conduct, because the conduct is what you can see. But can I humbly uh, say this? You not only pay attention to the conduct, because the conduct sometimes reveals the character, but you've got to pay attention to the condition of heart. This is what I call the three C's of coaching. You've got to look at the conduct and you've got to evaluate the, con the character. And it, be beyond, be beyond the character, you've got to discern what is going on in their heart. Whether, it's your, whether you're parenting teenagers or whether you're leading a team in your business or whether you're leading a church ministry, condition of the heart is important. That's why I said don't focus on growth. Growth is a bright product. Focus on health. Healthy leaders, healthy individuals, healthy families, when they continue to come together and put their heart and their soul together to grow and to build, God will bless that work. I want you to pay attention to what I'm saying here. That's why I want to talk about the seven traits of highly effective disciple makers in this video. Because I want you to catch what are some of the traits that, that causes a person to truly embrace the mission of Jesus Christ. See, we are in the business of converting people, correct? We convert people threefold. 
I want you to convert them to Christ. I want, them to, I want you to convert them to the church. And I also want you to convert them to the cause. What I mean by convert, you know, convert meaning that you are ch changing the course, you're bringing alignment to their life and you're bringing them to Christ. So when you're connecting them to Christ, you're making them to convert and make Christ the Lord of their life. At the same time, you're converting them to a church. In other words, you're connecting them to a local church. In other words, you're helping them to embrace the vision and the culture and the values that govern a local church. Now, this is important. But most importantly, you're not only connecting them to Christ and to the church, but you're connecting them to the cause of Jesus Christ. And the core mission that Christ has left for us is to make disciples of all nations, beginning at our home. So I want to be authentic in my discipleship. I want to disciple my wife, my children. At the same time, I want to bring on my journey a few key individuals whose hearts the Lord has touched, and I want to intentionally disciple them. So what makes an effective disciple maker? There are seven traits I want you to see. So if you're a zone shepherd leading a group of life group leaders, I want you to listen to me carefully. When you sit down with your life group leaders, these are the seven things I look for in life group leaders. And I want you to cultivate in them, constantly keep reminding them, bringing them back to that place to keep cultivating and growing in these seven traits. If you are a life group leader, this is what I look for in you. And I pray that God will cultivate in this. So it applies to a zone shepherd, it applies to a pastor, it applies to a life group leader, but it also applies to every individual in the church because you and I are called to be an effective disciple maker. Hallelujah. So let's begin. Number one, firstly, the first trait is Holy Spirit filled. The word of God is very clear that the Christian life is a supernatural life. See, you and I cannot live the Christian life without willpower. We will fail. The flesh cannot live out the gospel mandate. The Bible says very clearly, love your enemies. Not just love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Do you know how many people lose their joy in the church world because someone criticized them, someone teared them down, someone did, them, did not like them, someone did not appreciate them? I want you to listen to me. You and I are supposed to even love our enemies, to be able to pray and bless those who curse you. Now listen to me carefully. This cannot be done in the flesh. This has to be done by the power of the Spirit. That's why Christian life begins as a surrender to Christ and let it be empowered by the Holy Spirit. Look how they chose leaders in the New Testament church. Acts chapter 6 and verse 3, the Bible says, Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit and full of wisdom. I want you to listen to me carefully. People were chosen to serve food in the cafeteria in the early church. They were doing morning tea. They were doing ushering duties. They were just doing ministry of helps. These are not people who are standing in the pulpit to preach. These are people who are serving cup of noodles and, and tea for the people. I want you to listen. They chose men who are full of good reputation, full of the spirit and full of wisdom. That was the characteristic of a leader in the church. A believer ought to be walking full of the Spirit because you can't serve like Christ did unless you have the fullness of the Spirit that Christ had. Look at verse 5. The Bible says, he goes on to say, they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit. I love it. 
In another passage of Scripture, in Acts chapter 11 and verse 24, the Bible actually speaks about Barnabas. You and I know what the word Barnabas means. Barnabas means son of encouragement. Barabbas, son of encouragement. This Barnabas, the Bible says, was a good man. He was full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. Hallelujah. I want you to think about this. Leaders in the church, leaders, whether you're leading a small group or a zone, or you're leading the whole ministry, or you're leading your family, people ought to be able to say that he is full of the Holy Spirit and full of wisdom. This is what Bill Bright said. Every day can be an exciting adventure for the Christian who knows the reality of being filled with the Holy Spirit, who lives constantly, moment by moment, under his gracious direction. Wow. When you live consciously, moment by moment, constantly being led by the Spirit, and you are waiting for his promptings, how beautiful your life would be. It's an adventure of faith. Praise God. That's what the Bible says. When you're full of the Spirit, you walk by the Spirit. Galatians chapter 5 and verse 16 says, I walk, I say walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. You won't have struggles with the flesh. It's not that you won't have struggles with the flesh. You won't allow the temptations of the flesh to overcome you. You won't allow the pressures of this life to overcome you. In other words, when you are walking in step with the Holy Spirit, when you're full of the Holy Spirit, you will not gravitate towards fulfilling the desires of the flesh. As a result, you can't handle persecutions. You can handle pressures of life. You can handle tribulations and you will be able to handle the temptations. That's why I want you to pay attention to this. This is important. What are you full of? Consider this morning. You know, Hudson Taylor used to fill a glass cup with water and put it on his podium. And when he's preaching about walking in the fullness, he will bang the table and, and the pulpit very hard with his fist. And what it, the cup will spill over. And he will highlight only when you go through times of trouble, when you go through times of criticism, times of discouragement, that is where what is inside will come out. So if you're not full of the Spirit, you won't be able to walk in the Spirit. Your flesh will dominate and your life will be filled with uh, temptations and yielding to temptations. Listen to me carefully. D.L. Moody said this, I firmly believe that the moment our hearts are emptied of selfishness and ambition and self-seeking and everything that is contrary to God's law, the Holy Spirit will come and fill every corner of our hearts. Isn't that true? If you can moment, if you can take your heart and empty it of selfishness, not only that, empty it of ambition and self-seeking and everything that is contrary to the God's law, the Bible says the Holy Spirit will come and fill you. Isn't that right? He won't fill you unless you empty the self out. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 18. I want you to read this text together with me. Come on, 3, 2, 1. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Listen carefully. It is a command. Not only be filled with the Spirit is a command, it is a continuous command. It is a continuous command to be filled with the Spirit. But what does it mean to be filled continually with the Spirit? It means this, that you allow the Spirit to control your life. When a person consumes wine, 
Wine intoxicates their body and as a result, that's a chemical imbalance that takes place. As a result, what happens is they become intoxicated. They're controlled by the influence of wine. The same thing happens when the Holy Spirit comes and he, you yield more and more yourself to the Holy Spirit. He now influences your life. In other words, He controls your life. Hallelujah. Now, this is a passive voice. In other words, this is done to you. It is not, how do, I, how do I fill myself with the Holy Spirit? You can't fill yourself with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit fills you the moment you follow SOS. You know what is SOS? It's a cry for help. What's the SOS? It is surrender obedience to the scriptures. It is scripture, obedience, surrender. In other words, you come back to the Lord and you say, Lord, here, I hold on to your word. And as your word says, I come and ask for you and, I, and you obey. Live a life of surrender and live a life of obedience and the Holy Spirit will fill you. And the word of God here is continuous. Continuously, he fills you. Hallelujah. I want to capture, I want you to capture this. See, some of my Pentecostal friends will probably think of this as be filled with the Spirit means when I wake up in the morning, I'm empty. I need to be filled, 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 filled of the Holy Spirit. In other words, um, you and I, we, we talk about, Lord, fill me with more of your Spirit. Can I humbly say this? Spirit is not a thing. Spirit, Holy Spirit is a person. He's a person. It's a personality. It's a spirit. You can't have more of him. You can only have, I can't, I can't say, I want to have more of Jesus. Jesus is a person. Holy Spirit is a person. So how can I have more of the Holy Spirit? The flip side is the truth. I can't have more of the Holy Spirit, but rather the Holy Spirit can have more of me. See, this is the key. If you truly want to be an effective, highly effective disciple maker, highly effective pastor, highly effective leader of a church, all you need to do is to allow the Holy Spirit to have more of you. So the key question to ask is, how much of you does the Holy Spirit have? It's not how much of the Holy Spirit do you have, it's how much of you does the Holy Spirit have? Are you yielding on a day-to-day -day basis? Are you taking the scriptures and living it out? Are you living a life of surrender moment by moment? You want him to lead you. And if you can overcome the desires of your flesh, that is a clear sign you are under the influence of the Holy Spirit. Hallelujah. Praise God. The second trait is holy. Now, why I added the second trait? Because I want you to see this together as a, per, as a string of pearls. You've got to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. You've got to live a Holy Spirit-filled life, and that Holy Spirit-filled life will lead to godliness. In other words, holiness. Now, you and I know that we are positionally holy. The Bible says that Christ Jesus is our holiness. His position before God is our acceptance. We are justified by faith, not by our works. So when you talk about holiness, we got to talk about the positional holiness and also the conditional holiness. In other words, positionally, I'm already holy, but practically speaking, I need to be changed and transformed into his likeness every single day. That's why holiness in the Bible, when, it, when the Bible speaks about holiness, it's not addressing that you are already positionally holy. Many times it's practically allowing the holiness of God to change your life. So listen to this. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 14 to verse 16. Let's read it together. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy where? In all your conduct. Circle that three words. In all your conduct, be holy. 
He's not talking to you about positional holiness. He's talking about your practical, outworking holiness in every aspect of your life, in your thought life, in your private life, in your family life, in your ministry life, in your handling of finances, in your handling of every temptation, that you live a life that is called holy. But he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Verse 16, since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Hallelujah. Now, you and I, we need to understand what is holiness. You know, when I was growing up in India, people wear white and white, white shirt, white pants to church. Women wear white saris and they don't wear any jewelry. The church I come from is a very, uh, it's an orthodox Pentecostal church. So they don't wear any jewelry. They don't have any TV at home. They're they are people who uh, want to live and display to the world a set-apart life. And many times when you look at their life, you, you, they, 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 very, they dress simply. So when you look externally, you look at them and you go, wow, their hair is in the right, uh, right place, right uh, hair, haircut, hairstyle, or their dress code is nice, or the way they, they, they're not, uh, they're not too, um, they don't flaunt their wealth. All these things, you look at it and you go, they must be holy. But can I humbly say this? That's not how holiness is measured. Holiness is measured by only one thing in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. It is about how set apart you are for the use of the master. Read with me in the scripture. 1 Peter chapter 1, uh, sorry, uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 21 and 22. Read this together with me. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. I want you to circle that, useful to the master of the house. That is what is called holy. Holy means that you are living a set-apart life where the master, the King Jesus, is able to use you for his glory. Your time, your talent, your treasures, your territories, every aspect of your life is come under the lordship of Jesus and he can use every aspect of your life for his glory and for the good of his kingdom. That is holiness. This is what Chuck's, Chuck Colson said. Holiness in the everyday business of every Christian. Holiness is the everyday business of every Christian. It evidences itself in the decisions we make and the things we do hour by hour, day by day. Listen to it. It affects the way you live your life. It affects the way you make your decisions, how you spend your time, how you spend your holidays, how you spend your free time, how you spend your treasures, where do you invest. All these things come back to that place of call, be holy. Hallelujah. I want to give you a quote. I want you to take this down. When you know you are set apart for a purpose and for a person, it will impact everything you do. I want you to pay attention to the two things I highlighted here. When you know you are set apart for a purpose, every vessel is set apart for a purpose, for an honorable use, and for a person. Sometimes certain things are only used by certain people. And it's for a person. It will impact everything you do. Your life is for his glory. And your life is for his purpose. And your life is to please Jesus, the one who died for you and gave himself completely for you. So 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 21 says, Set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, and ready for every good work. 
but at the same time it also has to have a practical outworking of holiness in our conduct that's why in verse 22 he says so flee youthful lusts and pursue righteousness faith love and peace along with those who call along on the lord from a pure heart three words i want you to capture here flee youthful lusts in other words leave those temptations leave those kind of desires that wrongful sinful affections fatal attractions of the heart unworthy pursuits ungodly loves you have to come and flee out of it if you know that your computer is causing you to sin, visit sites that you should not visit. If your phone is tempting you to go to those kind of sites that you shouldn't go, those adult sites that you shouldn't be part of, you should put some measures in place because the Bible says flee. What does it mean to flee? It means that you and I cannot take the power of darkness too lightly. You can't say, yeah, I can overcome. And you're so tempted, you're so filled with uh, inner raging that you go and visit these sites. I want you to listen to me carefully. How are you keeping yourself accountable? The Bible says, flee. Secondly, it says, pursue, remove, replace. You know, the, uh, when, you, when you don't have anything to do, idle time is devil's workshop, isn't it? That's what they say. In other words, when you don't have anything to do, where does your time go? You, it goes into your weakness. That's why you've got to have a person who is wanting to live a holy life. He takes control, takes charge of every aspect of his life, including his downtime. Because the downtime can either be a powerhouse where you are refreshed in worship and praise of God, or you can fall into the pitfall of temptations. So listen carefully. You and I, we need to understand. Flee and then pursue. But then I love this word that Paul writes. He says, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. In other words, with. Flee, pursue, with. With meaning, who are you doing life together with? Who is keeping you accountable? I know most men who are watching me in this will say, I'm tempted, pastor. I'm going through this, pastor. You know, in this past few months, I've been counseling pastors who are being tempted to do sinful things. Pa uh, leaders, church leaders who are going through living a double life. This is important for you and I to understand who is keeping you accountable. Who can step in and ask you that question? That's why if you're in a leadership of a church, you need to keep yourself accountable invite accountability invite people to hold you accountable if you're especially struggling with a sinful habit don't leave it because we have already heard how people have been damaged reputation has been damaged ministries have been destroyed families are now in greater pain and turmoil when things surface when fault lines appear when the double life is exposed i want you to listen to me carefully one of the core things that I want you to pay attention to is don't live a life where your wife or your husband or your children will be embarrassed. I take to heart this every single day. And I want you to listen to me carefully. If you're a man struggling with sexual sin, listen. Invite your wife to be your accountability partner. Put all your devices in a place where she has access to. Your bank accounts, your money, your finances, she should have access to. All these things are important so that there is someone within your life that, that's holding you accountable. And if you don't listen to your wife, she should be able to turn to a church leader or a pastor and to be able to say, or a zone shepherd, and to be able to say, please step in and help my husband. And you need to be willing to go through that process. 
I want you to listen to me carefully. I'm saying this with much burden. Number three, humble. The third trait is humble. Humble is that you have a proper self-assessment. You know your weakness. You know your strengths. You know what are some of the pitfalls that you would have in your life. You know what are the uh, uh, gift sets that you carry. You need to be aware. Everyone needs to have an awareness of their blind spots. And this humility is important because the Bible says, 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 5 and 6, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Right there it says, be subject to the elders. But you know, you won't want to submit if you don't have humility. If you cannot invite correction, if you cannot invite that, that kind of a rebuke, if you cannot invite that kind of accountability, you can't submit. And the main reason you need that is humility. Clothe yourself, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. You and I know this. When you're proud... You are on opposition with God. Do you want to be in opposition with God? My goodness, humble yourself. Not only that, when you want to be like Christ, Christ modeled for us what humility is like. Whereas the devil, Satan, he was lifted up in pride, the Bible says. And that was the downfall for the Satan. So listen to me. When you are proud, you align yourself with the devil. You're not Christ-like. Listen, John Stott said this. At every stage of our Christian development and in every sphere of our Christian discipleship, pride is the greatest enemy and humility our greatest friend. Pride is more than the first of the seven deadly sins. It is itself the essence of all sin. Listen to that. Pride is the essence of all sin. At the core of our sin, sinful tendency, sinful habit is pride. And that is why you and I, we need to humble ourselves. The Bible doesn't say, go and humble your wife. The Bible doesn't say, go and humble your husband. You cannot humble another person. You can humiliate another person, but hum humble is something that you and I need to do ourselves. Look at that, 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, in the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time, He may exalt you. Humble yourselves. Doesn't mean that you put down yourself. Doesn't mean that you think lowly of yourself. Humility doesn't mean to think lowly of oneself. Humility is not thinking lowly or thinking highly about oneself. Humility is not thinking about yourself at all. That means you don't think about yourself. You think about Christ and his glory. Hallelujah. A pastor was uh, given the title, the most humble pastor in America. So there was a badge that they gave, the church gave the badge to the pastor to say, you are the most humble pastor in America. And the following week, they took the badge from him because he started wearing it. See, humility is a very peculiar thing. Listen to this. Bernard said this, humility is a most strange thing. The moment that you think you have acquired it, it is just the moment you have lost it. The moment you think you have arrived, the moment you lost it. In other words, humility should be at the core of our being. And the one way I've, helped, I've realized to walk in humility, I need to remind myself of where I came from and how God has brought me where I am today. You know, this month of March, I'm recording this on the 7th of March. 22 years ago, on 7th of March, I met my wife for the first time. 22 years ago. And in that time, I had nothing in my pocket. 
3rd of March, I received a visa after 72, uh, they said 72 weeks of processing, we will reject your visa to come to Australia on a permanent migration visa. But after 26 weeks, miraculously, that visa was granted to me on the 3rd of March. That was 21 years ago. Why I recollect these things? On the 5th of March, I landed in this country. When I landed in this country, Qantas lost my luggage. I walked out of the airport absolutely with nothing in my hand. And that is how I came into this country. So 21 years ago, when I recollect these things, I see the faithfulness of God. It brings nothing else but tears in my eyes and the, recollecting the faithfulness and the goodness of God. I know I don't have what it takes to be what God has called me to be, but He has stood with me, blessed me, chose me, called me, anointed me, and blessed me, and graced me, and favored me to do what I do today. And that is what, I'm a man of tears. My wife knows these people who are closest to me know. I'm very quick to cry. And the reason I flow in tears is because deep down in my heart, I know it is He who has given me His grace. And that is humility. Humility is to come to the place to recognize that He is everything and we are nothing. I'm going to give you six ways you can live humbly. Read this together with me. Come on, three, two, one. Listen more than you speak. If you're humble, you will listen more than you speak. You will shy away from things that feed your ego. One of the things that greatest temptations that people fall is they want people to always stroke their ego. Stay away from those things. If you're humble, you will walk away from this. Thirdly, submit to accountability of a mentor. Choose to obey. If not, you become a God to yourself. In other words, no one can correct you. No one can rebuke you. No one can bring any criticism into your life. What will happen is you become a God to yourself. So learn to submit to a wise mentor. Now, there are mentors and there are mentors. What do I mean by that? There are mentors and there are tormentors. There are people who will abuse the leadership that's given to them. So you got to choose wisely, right? But the key thing is here. Do not shy away from jobs or responsibilities that you do not enjoy. That's one core thing of humility. All our church leadership teams, whoever, the couple that are serving, we invite couples to serve in ministries, and all the couples that are serving in ministries, they carry loads beyond their ability, beyond their gift sets. They do abound beyond. You know the reason why they do it? And many of them do it not because they are very good at it. They do it because they see a need and they fill it. And they don't shy away from doing the hard work. They don't shy away from doing the dirty work. They don't shy away from doing what needs to be done. Even responsibilities that they don't enjoy. That's called humility. Serve more in secret than in public. Don't wait for someone to give you a platform. Don't ask for positional leadership. Have an influential leadership. Influence doesn't require a title. Influence is that you're able to live out the gospel and people will be naturally attracted to that. You don't need a title. You don't need a position. You don't need anyone to come and say, you are a leader. You will have influence if you just start serving. Serving more in secret than in public. Lastly, be the first to humble yourself in a conflict and to repent of your own mistakes. How often I find this funny? That leaders who are supposed to be humble are the leaders who, who you know, they're supposed to be humble. They, would, they need to take ownership of the issue. Doesn't matter who was in the wrong. The first one to be able to take ownership of the problem and admit and repent. This is a sign of maturity and a sign of humility. I want you to pay attention to this. How do you react when people criticize you? 
How do you react when people um, compliment you? How do you react when people overlook you and underappreciate you? How do you receive corrections? All these things are questions that you and I, we need to examine. Number four, the fourth trait is happy. A Christian owes it to the world to be supernaturally joyful. A.W. Tozer said that. A Christian owes it to the world to be supernaturally joyful. How many of you know joy is not dependent on the happenstance? If the happenings are happening the way you want it to happen, then you will be happy. (laughs) But joy is a byproduct of being so God-centered. Holy Spirit-filled, holy, humble, you will be happy. Look at what the Bible says about the disciples in Acts chapter 13 and verse 52. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. The disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. I love this two distinct feelings. They were filled with joy and filled with the Holy Spirit. You and I know Holy Spirit is the one that produces the joy. Isn't it? Love, joy, peace. But there is a double portion of love, a joy here. He says they are filled with joy. They are joyful. They are grateful. They are filled with happy. You cannot be a Christian and have a face that is baptized in Tom Yum Soup. Now, if you don't know what Tom Yum Soup is, it could be lemon juice. It's not, you're baptized in lemon juice. I want you to listen to me. You and I have to express the joy of the Lord. And the joy of the Lord can, 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 can be there. Now, I want you to listen Paul commands this twice. The whole book of Philippians, you and I studied together. Philippians is a book that speaks about the joy of the Lord. But more importantly, the emotions, for emotions to be filled with joy, it is how you think about things. The more you think about things, if you think rightly, you will feel rightly. That's why one of the core things that you and I need to understand is joy is a command. It's a commandment. Command means that you have to obey it. That means Paul knows that you can trigger joy in your life. You can live in a constant state of joy. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I would say rejoice. Nehemiah 8.10, the Bible says, The joy of the Lord is your strength. If you're a life group leader, is your life filled with joy? If you walk into your marriage, is there joy in your marriage? You know, is there, is there laughter at home? You know, one of the core things I'm thankful to the Lord is I look around when we come together as a leadership team, we laugh at things. We do laugh. We have the joy of serving the Lord together because we are invested in each one's life. When I go, my, go back to my home, there's joy in the house. Um, I, I want to see my wife filled with the joy of the Lord. I want to see my children serve the Lord with gladness of heart. This is important. It is something that you work towards. It's a byproduct of living and thinking right. The Bible says, if you do not have joy and you serve the Lord without joy, there is a severe punishment. In the Old Testament, they were punished. Look look at this. In Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 47, because you did not serve the Lord with your with the Lord your God with joyfulness and gladness of heart because of the abundance of all things. Therefore, you shall serve your enemies whom the Lord will send against you in hunger and thirst, in nakedness and lacking everything. He will put a yoke of iron on your neck until he has destroyed you. Listen, you don't serve the Lord with joy and gratefulness and gladness of heart. You will be serving the enemy and he will put a heavy burden on you and you will have everything. You will have lacking in everything. Listen, 
how severe that is. In other words, don't be mad about things. Don't be sad about things. Be glad because God is still sovereign. God is still on the throne and God still has things to do in your life. Hallelujah. Fifthly, harmonious. A man who is Holy Spirit filled, who is humble, who is holy, who is happy, will also be harmonious in how he works with others. First Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 10 to 12, the Bible says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you, that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Paul commands here and says, don't have any divisions among you. You know how sad it is when church goes through conflict, when there is polarization. People are in one camp, leaders are in another camp, all these kind of polarization and divisions. These are things that you and I have to avoid, the Bible says. You need to be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. Verse 11 says, It is reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas, I follow Christ. In other words, look at this. Today, it may not be following a personality. It could be, oh, I'm an Armenian, I'm a Calvinist, oh, I'm a Baptist, I'm a Pentecostal, I'm a Charismatic. Today, we have different labels and people fight over these things. Oh, I prefer expository preaching every Sunday. I don't want any topical sermon. People fight over these things. People will say, every time you preach, you have to preach the gospel. Every time you need to say, you need to mention, you need to come back to that. I want you to listen to me carefully. All these things can be a point of contention. But we shouldn't allow that to be. Romans chapter 16 and verse 17, Paul writes, I appeal to you brothers to watch out for those who cause divisions. Watch out for people who are contentious, cantankerous. And create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. Circle that word. Avoid them. In other words, you sit down with somebody who is causing division, who speaks divisively. You know, sometimes you, this is something I have to say this. Over the course of my um, journey with church leaders, I've sat down with church pastors who are working in a team in other churches. And or maybe it's an elder of a church or a board member. When I'm sitting down with them, sometimes you get this feeling that they can do the job better than their senior pastor. They may not say it outrightly, but they can portray that to you. That somehow he doesn't measure up. Somehow that person is failing. Somehow they can do a better job if it was given to them. That's the devil. Listen to me carefully. That is not of God. The Bible says, humble yourself in the mighty hand of God that he will exalt you in due time. The moment you put yourself up, you will have a great fall. Listen to me carefully. Why I'm saying these things is because conflict arises out of one man's ambition. Conflict in a church arises of one man's deep desire to have prominence or to be preeminent, or to have glory, or to have platform, or to have appreciation or recognition, or whatever it is. That's why I want you to listen. In an intentional disciple-making church, we emphasize we don't serve the people. We serve the audience of one. We don't live for the applause of men. We live for the approval of God. Will God approve your life? And if he does, he will lift you up. The station, the portion, and the season for your life will come. But you got to wait in humility 
But the moment you run wild to cause divisions and chaos, the Bible says, avoid them. Look at this. In Titus chapter 3, Paul goes on to say, in verse 10, As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. If anyone is contentious, this is what I want you to do. Zone shepherds, life group leaders, listen carefully. If anyone causes, keeps causing the same kind of stirring of division, warn him once, warn him twice. After that, nothing to do with him. Why? Because this is serious issue in the eyes of God. Knowing that such a person is whopped up and sinful, he is self-condemned. In other words, there's no humility in that person. There is no harmony. He doesn't want to work towards unity in the body of Christ. Now, I want to take a moment to address this because as a church, I'm grateful to the Lord that God has brought in our midst people from different church backgrounds. In other words, people who have been in Presbyterian church, Baptist church, Anglican church, Charismatic church, Pentecostal church are here. So people who are Calvinist or Armenians are here. People who love the word of God and want to grow together, they are here in this house. And I'm grateful to the Lord for bringing us together and showing us that we are from diverse cultures, diverse church backgrounds, but we are united in the cause of disciple-making of all nations. I'm grateful to the Lord for that. But can I humbly say this? When you sit down and talk about things, there will be disagreements because we may not agree on how we structure ourselves, what programs we run, or how we do things, or whether we speak in tongues, we don't speak in tongues, whether we lift our hands in worship, whether we sing hymns or do this. There could be a lot of, lot of things which we may not agree with. But I want you to listen to me. Those things don't matter in the long run. Can I give you there are three things when it comes to beliefs? One, there are three levels of beliefs. One, there is a belief that you die for. There are beliefs that you defend and there are beliefs that you discuss. For me, it's very simple. What are the beliefs that I die for? There are beliefs that I will die for is that Christ Jesus is Lord. He is incarnate Son of God. He is eternal Son who became an incarnate Son. And I believe that Jesus Christ was born in a virgin birth, lived fully God, fully human life, died and bodily rose again and he is ascended into heaven and he's coming back again. That to me is a, it's a, it's an, it's a belief to die for. The inerrancy of the scriptures, that scripture is God-breathed, that all scripture is given to us from above. Now that is something that we believe, hallelujah. So these are things that you, that you, are, that you die for. But then there are... <laughs> If you ask me personally, there are beliefs that I would defend. I'm a continuationist, not a cessationist. In other words, I believe Holy Spirit is for today, the gifts are for today, and the speaking of tongues, the prophesying, and all that, because I move in the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And, I've, I've, and, and people will come and say that the Lord spoke through my life, through my ministry, for them, prophetically. Now, I can't keep sharing testimonies here. So those are things I would defend. So if I'm talking to somebody who believes that everything is ceased, Cessationists believe that the gifts are not for today, that it ended when the apostolic age ended in the book of Acts. I want you to listen. We can still dialogue and we can still do life together because that's not something we need to die over. It is about things that you can defend. But then there are things that you can discuss. Oh, baptism, is it sprinkling? Is it water baptism? Is it immersion? How, how long you need to keep the person inside? Is it one second? Is it three seconds? Is it five seconds? Or is it until they die? I want you to listen to me. 
Those things we can discuss. Those things don't matter in the long run. So why I'm saying this is because I want you to pay attention to this. Don't make a minor thing a major thing when you walk into a new church. Don't major on minors, major on the majors. As long as there's so much to do in the kingdom of God, let's put our hearts together, hands together, heads together, and do the work of the gospel because salvation to all mankind needs to be preached. And then the end will come. The Bible says Jesus is coming back to his church very soon. So let's love one another. John chapter 13 and verse 34 and 35. The Bible says, New commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you're also to love one another. Love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Love is seen in how you disagree. Yeah, I can agree to disagree and I still love you. That's the key. St. Augustine said this, in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. In other words, in all things, show love. That's why one of the core things in my mentoring, I always tell the leaders to pay attention to this. There's a difference between posture and principle. You and I can agree to disagree. We can dialogue around principles. But in our disagreement, don't make the disagreement become personality issues. I will love the person, but I can dialogue about the principles. Because the principles will either help me strengthen my own conviction or help me to correct their wrong perception. It will help us. Dialogue around the principles and we still love each other. But the moment you turn it into personality clash, the disagreement has now become between two personalities. Now you become disagreeable. Now this is key. Don't allow it. And even when you're presenting an issue or a problem with your leadership team, always have this humility of heart to know I could be wrong or maybe I'm not seeing everything clearly. Could you help me understand? These are language of humility. In other words, I always say this, posture is more important than your position. You may take a stand about something, but in what posture do you communicate it? What posture do you approach it matters. For your own soul, for your own soul's sake, embrace the right posture. Hallelujah. Finally, I want to give you sixth one. Heart working. What is heart working? Heart working is, you know, there are two kinds of people. Someone who is hardly working, someone is hard working, but this is Heartworking. Colossians chapter 3, verse 22 says, Bond servants. In other words, these are servants, these are slaves. He's talking to the slaves. Obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Not by pleasing men, but pleasing the Lord. Then verse 23, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Hallelujah knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. No matter what you do, do it unto the Lord. The Lord is your boss. That's the key. You know, Howard Hendricks, he's a um, well-known author. He was traveling in a plane that was delayed at the tarmac. And uh, at the tarmac, when it was delayed, the, the, the passengers were getting restless and they started to abuse the flight attendant. But this particular flight attendant, he noticed, she was smiling, she was very calm and poised, 
and she was giving them uh, whatever they requested with such a pleasing personality. And then finally, after a long delay, the plane took off. Now, when the flight attendant was serving the people and she came to Howard Hendricks, Howard Hendricks asked her, would you please let me know your name? I want to write a recommendation letter to you, to your company, uh, to the airline company, so that they will know how good you are. You are one of the most pleasing stewardesses who handle the, the frustrations of people with, with a good poise and a smile and a good, uh, good, good countenance. And the lady replied to him, Sir, I don't work for the airline company. I work for my boss. My real boss is the Lord Jesus Christ. This morning, I came to the workplace. My husband and I, we laid hands on each other and prayed for each other that we will represent Christ well at our workplace. And I'm glad that you noticed it. Praise God. Listen to me carefully, church. You are always being watched. Serve the Lord with gladness of heart. Let people be amazed by your excellence. Let people be amazed by the way you go the extra mile. Let people know that you are a person who will follow through. Never be said of you that you are late and you're always uh, mediocre and you're always someone who has to drag their feet to do work. No, no, no. People of God, we need to recognize that whatever we do, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 31 says, whatever you do, whether you eat, eat, drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Hallelujah. Do it all for the glory of God. Praise God. So this is important. I remember years ago, this is going back almost 20 years ago in this country. My wife and I, we just finished a leadership meeting in one of the shopping centers. We had dinner with a group of leaders. And uh, at around 7 or 7.15, we come out of the, into the car park. And there I saw a man, a husband, waiting outside the car. And he looked very distressed. And there was a, there was a wife seated in the car. And there was a young primary school boy in the car, uh, the back seat. And they, he was wearing his school uniform. Now, I asked them, uh, how can I help them? The man approached me and said, uh, uh, can you, sir, can you show me? In those days, they didn't have GPS, right? They used to have this huge map book that it connects from page to page and page to page. They are obviously from out of town. They, he said to me, we have driven for six hours straight and we are here. And by eight o'clock, I need to be in this sports, um, in this sports stadium. I need to be here. Uh, for my, to enroll my son for a competition, but we have been lost. I don't know where to go, and, uh, and uh, could you please help me show the direction? Just write it down for me because it's too many pages. I'm familiar with this uh, area in the Hills District where we live and work, um, so I asked him, sir, don't worry. What time do you need to be there? They, oh, they've closed by 8 o'clock. It's already 7.15 now. I said to him, it will take us half an hour to get there. I will do one thing for you. Just follow me in the car. You just drive behind me. I'll lead you there. He said, no, 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 no. You don't need to do that. Just mark. I said, no, no, no. If you make the wrong turn, you will again be in a place where you're limbo. You just wait. So I drove. My wife and I, we drove that person 30 minutes towards that uh, uh, stadium, left him there. And once I got out to say bye to him, they, we reached there on 745. And by the grace of God, they were in time. And he wanted to, he opened his wallet and took some money and he wanted to put it in my hand. And he said, with tears rolling down his eyes, he said, I can't thank you enough here. And I said, sorry, I didn't do this for the money. I did it so that you would know that there is a God in heaven who loves you. Jesus loves you. Now go enroll your son and have a good night.
I've moved on. The reason I'm saying this is because it's not because people are watching you that you do. Excellence is a culture you should carry. Going the extra mile should be a culture, whether it's in church or outside, in your workplace or in your family life. Don't be a person who's mediocre. Don't be a person who, uh, who does things half-heartedly. Go full on. Do, what, do the best you can. Now, finally, the seventh trait is hunger. You must be hungry. In other words, a highly effective disciple maker is someone who stays in the posture of hunger. The Bible says in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, and for they shall be satisfied. Your hunger for God will be seen in how you live your life. Do you have hunger for God's presence? In other words, do you put on a worship CD or something and start to be in God's presence, enter into God's presence? Do you have that hunger to, to be with God's people? Do you have that hunger to pray and cry out before the Lord to ask for help? That hunger is to be, when you have that, the Bible says, He will satisfy you. It was John Wesley who said this, and I've always taken this to my heart. He says this, Light yourself on fire with passion, and people will come from miles to watch you burn. If you have the hunger and you light yourself on fire with passion, and people will come from miles to watch you burn. Wow. So how do you stay hot for God? How do you stay in that posture of hunger? You got to de declare an absolute dependence upon God. You got to recognize that you can't, only He can. He can't transform other people's lives. He can't transform your family life. He can't help your kids to have a godly life. You, you, you can't do these things, only He can. So you and I, we need to recognize our absolute dependence upon Christ. At the same time, we need to declare our absolute surrender. Lord, I can't. Not that I give up, but I want to give in to you. I want you to step in to do the work. When you have the right hunger, you want to be filled with the Holy Spirit. I want you to see this whole thread, church. There's seven things, and it's a pearl, it's a necklace, and it's all connected to one another. When you have the right hunger for God, you recognize your bankruptcy and your dependency upon Christ. Your adequacy is not in yourself, but in Christ. So therefore, what do you do? You want to be filled with the Holy Spirit. You wait upon the Holy Spirit to be filled. You yield yourself to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And when you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you become holy. You become humble. You become happy. You will be harmonious in the way you do work with other people. And you will work with your heart. And when you do all this, there will be a posture of humility, happy, harmonious, and there is a Holy Spirit-empowered uh, life, and there's a place of hunger. Listen to me carefully. These are the seven traits that I pray that you will cultivate. And if you're leading a group of people, that you will help them to cultivate. That if you're leading a group of uh, leaders, that you will help them to cultivate. And this is my prayer for you. And I pray that the Lord will continue to empower us to live for His glory, be filled with the Holy Spirit, empowered by the Holy Spirit, under the Lordship of Jesus Christ, establish ourselves in the Word of God, and do His will. God bless you. I'm praying for you. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this moment. I commit each and every one of you in your loving hands, mighty God. No matter what their station of life is, whether they are a young person or an old person, or whether they are a member in a church, or whether they are a leader in a church, or whether they're the pastor of a church, Lord, I pray that your grace be upon them, that they will continue to live out a godly life.
Holy Spirit empowered under the Lordship of Jesus Christ, rooted and grounded in the scriptures, loving the Lord wholeheartedly and doing his will wholeheartedly. Thank you, Lord. Help us to live a whole life. In Jesus' name we pray and people of God said, Amen and Amen. God bless you.